Biotech giant Moderna squares off with the National Institute of Health in a surprisingly public battle over inventorship of the Moderna Spikevax COVID-19 vaccine. Today, we're gonna dive into fairness and morality at the molecular level. This is Stuff You Should Know About IP. Today's episode of Stuff You Should Know About IP is brought to you by the Patent Lawyer Magazine. If you wanna stay up to date with everything that's going on in the world of IP and patents, go to www.patentlawyermagazine.com. Each issue is free to read up to eight weeks. That's patentlawyermagazine.com for global news in the world of patents. All right, Tom, who's right, the NIH or Moderna? Can you just oh, give great. the opinion for us now and then we can just get- Yeah, just get it over. Then we then everyone can turn it off, right? Right, yeah. You I know, mean, no no we, reason to listen to us talk <laughs> for 20 minutes. Yeah, we had to do this podcast today. You know, I originally wanted to do one on- publicity rights with all these videos on YouTube that go viral. Yeah. We'll have to save that for next time because this is just too timely. Ooh, I, I like mean, it. You're, you're plugging the next episode. Exactly. 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 So uh, anyway, so Moderna and the NIH. So just to give you a quick background on who these players are. NIH is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And the Department of Health and Human Services has the NIH. They also have something called BARDA, B-A-R-D-A, which is the Advanced Research, or let's see the it, wait the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, and then the NIH basically has the National Institute of Allergies and let's see infectious diseases. Yes, infectious disease. Good, I like that. And then the National Center for Advancing Transitional Services. So the NIH and Barda have both invested in Moderna. So, but you know to get their vaccines going. So. Back up though, because Moderna started out of research or out of Harvard with a Harvard assistant professor in like 2005. And then they got a bunch of private investment and then they kind of grew and grew and grew. And then ultimately they went public in 2018. And I think it was, what was it? The largest biomedical IPO, I think in history or maybe the largest vaccine. Yeah. It, was, it, was the, it was the largest IPO, I think, they said for a company that hadn't brought a product to market yet. Yeah, because their their only product to market is the COVID nineteen vaccine. Yeah, right. Crazy. So, but they get they go public and they get like six hundred twenty one million dollars. So they're just like cruising before COVID. Mm-hmm. Then COVID hits. They get investment from the and and by the way they've been working with the NIH anyway. So the NIH is definitely involved with Moderna and they're they're investing, but. The big question is, Moderna files three patent applications, and two of them relate directly to the mRNA-1273 sequence. One of them is for a a method of using the mRNA-1273 sequence. And by the way, I'm I'm saying the whole thing out. I'm sure that people in the industry say like the 1273 or the 73 or the mRNA. I mean, I don't know what people in the industry call it, but that's what it is. Spike or spike facts, yeah, it yeah. Just sounds exactly. like it's, you know, it's gonna, I don't know, spike it like, like you're gonna spike a football, you know, you're yeah, because yeah, you got the, a big victory, like the right. virus right out of your body. Yeah, and so, but anyway, so the question is, so, so Moderna files these patent applications. They list 
one or more inventors from the NIH on their method of using the 1273 sequence, but they do not list them on the patents that directly relate to the mRNA-1273 sequence. So NIH is coming back and the public is coming back, by the way, and saying, this is wrong. They should have been listed on those patents. So what, what got us talking about this is initially I read that an article in the New York Times about this dispute. And I just want to go through some of the stuff from it, okay? So basically, the there's a spokeswoman from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is part of the NIH. Her name is Kathy Stover. And she says, quote, omitting NIH inventors from the principal patent application deprives NIH of a co-ownership interest in that application and the patent that will eventually issue from it. So that's the first thing I want to address is, you know, let's keep in mind, it is correct that ownership of a patent in the U.S. in particular flows from inventorship. So if you are the inventor and there is no contract that says otherwise, you are an owner of the patent. So let's say there's five inventors. All five inventors are owners and all five inventors have the opportunity, the right to exploit their ownership interest by licensing the patent, by, you know, basically all the owners can license the patent. So the big issue is, well, the federal government, the U.S. government via the NIH, they claim they should have co-ownership rights so that they could like license it out to manufacturing facilities throughout the world to spread this vaccine farther. And by the way, we did do a video or we did a podcast on this now that I think about it. We did do a podcast on patent rights associated with with the COVID vaccines across the board, not just Moderna. Right. But so anyway, the thing that she's incorrect about here is omitting the NIH inventors from the principal patent does not necessarily deprive the NIH of co-ownership because you could have a contract, right? I mean, unless I'm missing something, when this agreement started, when they first started investing in the in uh, Moderna, you would think there'd be a joint development agreement in place or a contract right. of some sort yeah. that assigns ownership interest, right? I'm pretty sure that the NIH didn't give Moderna $460 billion on a, a, a word of mouth agreement. Or... Yeah, million, right? Yeah. Did you say million or billion? Was it million or... Was no, no, they, they've invested oh. a total of like... Oh, yeah. Uh, Did I say billion? Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be, right. that'd be a bit much. Yeah, it'd be a bit much. I guess they, I guess they developed like, you know, they a few billion dollars altogether in the, you know, investments. And then there was pre-purchases because apparently they spent like another, the government spent like another $8 billion to yeah. buy doses, right? Which, by the way, were, everybody wanted these doses, right? So, right. but the U.S. made an advanced purchase, I guess, of like $8 billion. Right. So but they had to have had some kind of agreement in place. Yeah, that's the thing is that, you know, when you're getting started, right? When you're starting a relationship, and, and you and I talk about this all the time, when you're starting a relationship, that's when you put your agreement in place because uh -huh. then you have all the leverage if you have the money. Because it doesn't matter if you funded it, if you because inventorship flows from or ownership flows from inventorship. So it doesn't matter who paid for it. The inventors own the patent unless there's an agreement that says otherwise. 
And that agreement should be put into place before you give dollar one. Because before you pay a company, you have all the leverage. Once you pay them, they have all the leverage, right? Right. So if it were me, and again, maybe there's there's rules about how the government can interact with private enterprises, but to me, you should always have your agreement that defines the intellectual property rights of the of the members of this relationship in advance. Then, so in a way, by if they didn't do that, and maybe they did, but it doesn't seem that they did that. If they didn't do that, then they're really harming the U.S. taxpayers who mm-hmm. could have had an equity interest in this, um, you know, vaccine. But at the right. same time, there's Moderna shareholders. They might have said no, like. Way back when, when the government first started deciding to invest and putting money in, if they had said, hey, we'll put money in, but we want to own the intellectual property rights, Moderna might have said, no, we don't want your money in that case. We'll go and sell advanced doses to a bunch of other countries who want to give us $8 billion, or we'll go find private investors who want to you know, get the benefits of our success in the marketplace but we need to own all the IP. But at least if that discussion occurs up front, everyone comes in with eyes wide open as to who owns what downstream, right? Right. Yeah, so so that's the first thing I wanted to mention. But the other thing is, in this article, there's this guy, John P. Moore, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Cornell University. Great school, right? Yep. So he says, he, or they say he called it a matter of fairness and morality at the scientific level, right? Then he yeah. says, these two institutions have been working together for four or five years. So let's talk about fairness and morality at the scientific level. It doesn't matter when it comes to inventorship. It's just not relevant. You are an inventor. You are a named inventor on a patent. If you can point to your inventive contribution in a claim, okay? Yeah. If you cannot do that, you are not a named inventor, even if you paid for it, even if you were like the cheering section as the inventor was developing and creating it, even if you made contributions to the infrastructure around this invention, you are not an inventor unless you can point to your inventive contribution in that patent. Okay. And I, 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 I have to just say this because it's driving me nuts. That is fair and moral. Yeah, yeah, right. right. It's not that it doesn't matter. I mean, you're right. I get your point. It doesn't matter when it comes to determining inventorship. But the concept of inventorship and the way that we uh, agree about it is fair and moral to the people who actually invented it and and to the system as a whole. Because if Moderna was able to just say, all right, you want to be an inventor? Go ahead. You can be an inventor. How is that fair? to the people who actually did invent it, right? It's, yeah, yeah, it goes right. against everything that they worked, that that person worked on and contributed. And, you know, it's, it's the fruit of their labor. Yeah, and inventorship might be one of the few remaining non-political decisions in the U.S., right? Because if you're talking about a published paper, if you're the boss, if you're the, the head of the department, you probably get your name on that paper if one of your associate professors writes, does the work and writes a paper. Because you can ha- have the name on the paper just as like a token of appreciation for your general contributions and guidance, right? Yeah. But that's political. 
Inventorship on a patent is not political. It's very scientific. It's very factual. If you can point to your inventive contribution in the claim, you're an inventor. If you cannot, you are not an inventor, again, no matter what you've contributed. So, so and, and then in this article, it's uh, this, this other person says, um, oh, there's this guy who writes a letter, which we'll talk about in a second. Public Citizen, it's called. And they are angry about the fact that the NIH was not included as a named inventor. And, and what they're saying is patents in general are bad. In a, in a pandemic, they say, it's a terrible idea to have a private corporation have a monopoly on part of a life-saving technology. Again, <laughs> it's the law that if you have something that's, that's yeah. new, non-obvious and useful, and you're the inventor of it, you get a patent. And the reason that's so important is because it incentivizes people to invest a lot of money in inventing stuff. And, and like you said at the beginning, Ray, how many products does Moderna have in the marketplace right now? One. Well, one. they might have something else coming. Or they have stuff in the recent, pipeline. But that I know of one. They've been in business since 2005. They have a whole bunch of investors who have put their money into Moderna. Yeah. And as of uh, November 13th, 2021, they have one product. Now, that product is killing it in the marketplace because of, you know, the pandemic. But there's also an issue of investors. You know, the investors started putting money into this company long before there was a pandemic. And and they should be rewarded for that. Now, is there some kind of a balance with respect to a pandemic? It's not really for me to say. I'm just talking strictly about patent law and what the rights are with respect to patent law. So, so really, it's not about morality and the, oh, you contributed or you've been friends for a long time or, you know, you really helped out a lot in, on yeah. the side. It's really very specific when it comes to um, inventorship. And then this, this article or this letter written to... Um, the director, uh, let's see, it was written to Dr. Collins of the National Institutes of Health, basically saying that, you know, they, the NIH should be an owner. Well, there are there is one of the patent applications that they are an owner of. The one on the method of using the mRNA 1273 um, sequence. So clearly the patent lawyer for Moderna analyzed the inventorship situation for the three patent applications. And in one of them decided that there was an inventive contribution from somebody from the NIH. And with respect to two of them said that there was not an inventive contribution of the from the NIH. And it was just the Moderna um, team. And, and that's important, right? Because patent lawyers have an ethical obligation to the patent office and also, there's a thing called fraud on the patent office. Have you ever heard of that, Ray? I've heard of it. So fraud on the patent office basically can occur if you intentionally leave inventors off of a patent, a, a patent application that you file. Yeah. So and, and it could be invalid. You could lose your patent. I mean, usually these things are corrected with a fee. Like I negligently forgot to include, you know, this person on the patent application as a named inventor. My mistake, I'll pay the fee, we'll add the name, and we're all good. But if you intentionally commit fraud on the patent office by omitting inventors, for example, if Moderna said, oh, my God, we don't want to have co-ownership with, um, 
with the federal government because it will hurt our exclusivity and our chance to make a lot of money. So we're going to intentionally leave the NIH inventors off. That's a serious thing, right? You could lose, you could have your patents invalidated over that, not to mention big fines. But it, it tells me that patent lawyers, you know, I'm a patent lawyer. I wouldn't do that because you could, you know, it, it could harm your reputation. It could harm your license. I mean, it's an ethical violation. And the fact that they added um, somebody on one, on one of the patent applications gives credibility to the fact that they analyzed it pretty carefully and, um, you know, determined that it, they were entitled on one, but not on the other two. And, and by the way, there's two other things, Ray, that jump out at me about this situation. One of which is, so the NIH and this, um, this group that wrote the letter to Dr. Collins, I think it's called the, uh, once again, Public Citizen, it's called. It's a Washington, D.C. organization. They're basically complaining, and, and the NIH is complaining that if they are listed as patents, they are co-owners. Again, contrary to, an, or, I mean, as long as there's no agreement to the contrary that provides assignment rights, if you're the inventor, you're one of the owners. If you're an owner, you can exploit your ownership rights. If the federal government of the U.S. is an owner, they can exploit their ownership rights by providing licenses to other nations, other manufacturers to get this out there, maybe even giving it away. That's the danger of co-ownership, right? Yeah. People think, oh, I want to be a co-owner. You know, hey, let's just split the ownership rights. You know, we both did this and whatever that is, right? If it's a patent and you have a co-ownership right, you do not really have an exclusive right. It's more like having a non-exclusive license because if I, if Ray and Tom co-own a patent and I want to go into business building this out in the marketplace and make products that are protected by the patent, and I want to use the patent to keep my competitors from copying the patented features and functions, but Ray, Ray has a different idea. He wants to license his rights to competitors of mine so that they can pay him so that it'll enable them to make the features and functions that are patented. All of a sudden, I totally lose the advantage of my patent, right? because I no longer can block my competitors from making, using, selling, and offering for sale patented features right. and functions that my customers want. Right. Because Ray is a co-owner and he went out and did this license deal with them, right? Right, yeah, the co-owners would have to agree. Yeah, co-ownership is a terrible idea right. if you have the opportunity to have exclusive ownership. Or by the way, as we know, Ray, you can carve up ownership rights so you can have different exclusivities. For example, Ray, you might have the exclusivity in one industry. I have exclusivity in the other industry. That's okay because now I can pursue patented products in industry A. You can pursue patented products in industry B or a license to companies that are in industry B, right? Then right. we both win. But fundamentally, patent ownership should be discussed and described up front before money starts going in, before you start making stuff. Get together, figure out what your business goals are, and then get the intellectual property rights you need to advance your business goals. And those might be exclusive rights, not co-ownership, non-exclusive rights. You know, so, so that's the one thing that jumps out at me. Another thing that jumps out at me about this is somewhere in these articles, I don't know if it's true, but they claim that 
the NIH and Moderna had separate teams working in parallel that oh, yeah. each independently designed the exact same sequence, right? Yeah. That's a really important thing because as you may know, Ray, back in like, I don't know, years ago, I think with the America Invents Act, we went, the U.S. went from a first to invent system to a first to file system. Yeah. Under a first to invent system, whoever invented it first gets the patent, okay? Right. Right. So whoever invented the thing and can prove that they invented it first, right. it doesn't matter who files first, the inventor, the first inventor gets the patent. But now under the first to file system, it's a race to the patent office. I mean, I imagine people like in the olden days running with their patent application and just slamming it on the desk at the patent office as somebody else who has the exact same invention is running behind them, but they got like tripped outside or didn't get a cab. But the point is, it's a race to the patent office. There's no question of inventorship or who invented first. So if two people independently invent something, they race to the patent office. And if it's true that the NIH and Moderna each independently invented the exact same sequence in separate teams and Moderna got there first, it's totally legit, right? right. It's a right. first to file system that we're in. Right. But so, okay, none of this really matters. I mean, it all matters, but the inventorship question of these NIH scientists doesn't really matter depending on what the agreements they had in place are. If they have agreements in place, but you're but when it comes right, to ownership, right. I mean, okay, but let's it, just speculate. I mean, we could probably assume safely that they have some kind of agreement in place. I mean, wouldn't it be yes. pretty negligent on the part of the lawyers of Moderna to not have an agreement in place and accept the cash from the from the government? Yeah. And and, by, and there might be rules like, you know, we just took a look at this this morning. Like right, I said, yeah. When we, again, yeah, when, yeah, yeah like we the went, government has rules like you yeah, can't take we our to, money unless we have a contract. Right. When we went to bed last night, you know, Ray, or at least I went to bed way earlier than you because you went out with your wife. But um, when when we when we when the night came last night, we were going to do a podcast this morning on this uh, publicity rights around these viral videos that go on yeah. YouTube. So this morning when I got up, I thought we got to do this one. So I didn't look deeply enough to see, you know, if there's rules that whenever you do business with the U.S. government, you know, by definition, by law, there's certain IP rules. But you'd think there'd be an agreement in place. And there was a quote in the in the uh, letter that was written by this person whose name is Peter Maybarduk, who is the director of access to medicines program for public citizen. And he says we also request that you publish all research agreements with Moderna. We are concerned that Moderna's decision to file for patents alone, weeks after it knew its NHI or NIH partners worked on the same problem and it reached the same solution, may not be consistent with the terms or the spirit of the contractual arrangement between NIH and Moderna. So clearly, Peter um, Maybarduk doesn't know if there were agreements. Tom right. and Ray don't know if there were agreements. But you'd assume that any competent person entering into a relationship yeah. where there will be contributions of millions and millions, maybe early billions, right. is going to have an agreement in place, right? As yeah. to IP ownership. Yeah. And this guy sounds like his whole job is to look into these kinds of situations 
and yeah he, he has a suspicion and is asking to see those agreements and he doesn't know, you know right i though. mean right yeah i mean and look if you don't have, if there was supposed to be agreements in place and there weren't, you should take our executive IP training classes because <laughs> we clearly podcast. I mean, we yeah, or watch about this podcast, right? Agreements and IP and agreements, you know. And since yeah, I mean, you think you have. I mean, you're jointly developing something. You think you'd have a joint development agreement in place, and yeah. JDAs always define like the foreground, the background, the postground, the sideground IP associated with each deal. So it just seems like Tom and Ray and Peter Mayburick and a whole bunch of people in the public are missing something. What it just doesn't Peter make sense. Mean, when he says uh, violates the spirit of the agreement. He didn't see the agreement. Well, he, <laughs> right? Okay, right, right. But what is, what is violating the spirit of the agreement? Yeah, I mean, in reality, agreements are defined by the words in the four corners of the document. Yeah, that's, that's right? what I mean. What is yeah. the spirit of the agreement? Yeah, Can you this is a person. The spirit of an agreement. Yeah, let's see. His name is Peter May Barduk, and I don't see comma ESQ. So I'm guessing he's not a lawyer. He's not a lawyer because we lawyers often like to put that just to brag that we're lawyers, right? So anyway, anyway, so it seems to me that this is going to be a fight, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be that complicated of a fight. Because if there's agreements in place, they'll define the ownership issues. And if there's not agreements in place, it's simply a question of determining whether the people from the NIH made inventive contributions in the claims associated with the mRNA 1273 sequence patent and whether they gave those contributions to the inventors that are named as the patent applicants. Because remember, they might have developed this. They claim they each invented the same thing, right? That's what, at least what the that's what this letter and these article this article say. There were separate teams working. They each invented the same thing. So if you invented the same thing and you have inventive contributions, but not to those claims because you did not contribute to the inventors of those patents, you're not an inventor, even yeah. if you even if you made inventive contributions to your own thing, but you never filed. Now, I suspect that if they were named on the method of using the mRNA 1273 patent and they were involved for four or five years together, there was probably a lot of back and forth, a lot of yeah. you know discussions and yeah. ideas flowing. But you know, you have to, you, you ultimately it's gonna come down to, can the NIH prove that they made inventive contributions to claims of the Moderna patents. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to me as I'm thinking more about this this claim that Moderna invented or came up with the same uh, discovery. What was the word that they used um, as the NIH independently? Yeah. Um, if the NIH and the Moderna and Moderna are working on this project together. Why, why would the NIH be doing anything independently of what they're doing with Moderna? It just seems that, that the NIH isn't, isn't a company like Moderna. It's a right. public institution. So they yeah, should be playing a support role. To right. I could see why Moderna would have their own people working on it yeah. independently because they're a company. 
But if the NIH is supporting the company, you'd think that they would overlap. You know, the it's like a Venn diagram, right? You'd overlap. Oh no, not even. It's like they're fully contained within. It's not. There's not yeah. an overlap. The circle is Moderna, and there's a circle inside that is the, the NIH. NIH. That's what you think, unless you know maybe the NIH is doing their own research trying to come up with a cure, which, by the way, is not a bad idea because these pandemics are probably just going to keep coming. You know, yeah. we've had I've, like I've, um, I think I've seen that before, where because um, you see, uh, if you ever come across the conspiracy theory people when it comes to uh, like government ownership of, of vaccines and, and technology like this, one of the things that they, they point at is, well, why, why would the government have a patent on technology like this? So, and I, and I, I mean, I, I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation for why the NIH or Anthony Fauci would be named as an inventor on a patent um, for, you know, something vaccine related, uh, but, one of the things that they point at is, is the fact that the government would have uh, inventorship or ownership rights over this kind of technology. But um, so I, I'm almost certain that they do, but I don't know if that's by way of relationships like, they, like, like the one we're talking about today between the NIH and Moderna, but they're, they're, they almost certainly have their own independent like projects that they're working on. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I've seen that before. Yeah, and, and you know, here's another funny thing. So let's say that the NIH prevails and these NIH inventors become co-inventors of this patent, right? I mean, this seems like it's not probably a situation of fraud on the patent office because Moderna seems to have a legitimate argument as to why they're not inventors. Even if they're determined to be wrong, they have a legitimate good faith basis for it probably. But let's say that they prevail and these NIH inventors become the owners. Unless they have an agreement with the NIH that they have to assign their rights, then they would be the owners. Now, they're individual people, right? Now, I'm guessing that, again, you'd, it just would be insane to think that there are not agreements in place with all these people. But they would be, they're, they're fighting to get the inventors on the patent, which would make them the owners. Well, but they must have an agreement. That's what I'm saying. The they NIH, must have assignment agreements. Even. I know they must have assignment agreements in place. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if 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 I have an agreement in place with executive with me. IP. Yeah, with executive IP, exactly. And, and yeah. CLG that says anything that I create. Right, right. I'm in, sure that. You know, the scope of my work yeah. is owned by the company. I'm pretty sure the NIH has that in their uh employment agreements and their, their, their contract. Yeah, right, right. I'm sure they have armies of lawyers and they've been around a long time. So, but that's why it just seems funny that this stuff isn't all buttoned up in a, in an agreement um, in advance. Now, maybe one of our many millions of uh, subscribers that are watching this yeah, video can, can chime in and say, no, there's this rule 8516B yeah, that says this. your hand and shake. Right. Yeah, yeah that's good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just going to go. Yeah, my word is oak. You know, so, but anyway, so definitely this is a, an interesting fight that I'm looking forward to following and finding out who wins in the battle of the, what'd you call it? The spike backs? The spike backs. Yeah. Spike backs. So thanks everyone for listening. If you found this conversation interesting and you like learning stuff about IP, make sure you comment, like, share, send this in an email, post it on your 
LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and we'll see you next time. See ya.